Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. The Slate Audio Book Club is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Get a free book when you sign up for a 30-day free trial at audiblepodcast.com slash slateabc. Welcome to the Slate Audio Book Club's discussion of The Interesting. Meg Wolitzer's novel about a group of friends in New York in the 70s, 80s, 90s, and beyond. I'm Dan Coyce, editor of the Slate Book Review, and I'm here in Slate's DC Recording Studio. Joining me is Slate's double X editor, Hannah Rosen. Hi, Hannah. Hi, Dan. And also joining us is our special guest this month, Slate's editor, David Plotz. Hi, David. Hello, Dan. When you said 70s, 80s, 90s, and today, I felt like it was a classic rock station. <laughs> yes. If this and book the book is, is. kind of is a classic rock yes. station. Uh, that, was, that was not unintentional. Yes, this, this book is a classic rock station for those of our generation and your generation of the greatest hits of friendship from the 70s, 80s, 90s, and today. Uh, as in all our audiobook clubs, we recommend that you listen to us after you read the book in question, unless you love being spoiled, in which case you should read us before, because we're going to talk about the many, many twists and turns of the interestings. So in Meg Welter's novel, a group of six friends meet at an arts camp in the summer of 1974, and then for the next 40-odd years, their lives intertwine in expected and unexpected ways, or maybe only expected if you have problems with the plot of the book. Uh, one becomes an animator with a long-running hit network show. He and his wife wind up fabulously wealthy, and as the years go by, that money strains their relationship with their best friend, a therapist who marries outside the group. So I thought I might start with that couple, with Ethan and Ash, who are sort of the centerpiece couple of this group of friends and the centerpiece couple of the novel. They attain a pretty glittering level of financial and artistic success over the course of the book. Ash is a feminist theater director. Ethan creates a TV show, Figland that uh, is based on his wacky family and his angry dad, and it runs for decades. Uh, so the first question, of course, is, so is he Matt Groening or what? He is Matt Groening of The Simpsons. Yeah, he's Matt Groening. So yeah. is Meg Walter, has she gone on the record of saying he's not Matt Groening, or is it? No. I don't know. No, oh, you, uh, you are, I thought you were asking me a question, like, in the context of the plot, is he? No, is I want to know if he's he really Matt Groening. Is she, like, friends with Matt Groening or something? I have no idea, oh, but okay. it's – I mean one thing I did not like about this book, one of the many things I didn't like about this book is the way it uses – it borrows cultural figures without actually using them in real life. So it has a, the mastery conference, which is the fake Ted. Right. They have a Ted and then they have the the mother of Jonah who is a fake Joan Baez character. Right. And then you have this. Wait, fake... but what? 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 You want her to say like announcing now is the well. It fake... allows it allows you to just borrow a huge amount from the culture, and you can kind of, you as the reader get to 
pleasurably compared to The Simpsons, but she didn't actually have to do the work of creating a character. She just borrowed whatever The Simpsons was, placed it whole cloth, and made Ethan Figman the creator of The Simpsons, but she just gave it a different name. I felt like it was a cheat. It allowed her to not invent a world, but just borrow a world. The argument against that is that the point of this book is it is meant to be in our world, and she wants you to make those references, but she doesn't want to get like sued by Matt Groening. But she wants it to be the world that we exist in, and she wants you to be thinking about how these characters would exist in your world, right? Also, this, you know, there's something wry in that or winking because the book is about talent and the ephemeral nature of talent and inspiration. And so there's something interesting about, you know, barring things that are out there in the culture and then and in her own book, those things being facsimiles of things that already exist. And so you're wondering exactly what you said. Is it because she doesn't have her own inspiration or is she winking at us and, you know, trying to just do cultural references? Like the entire book is about that idea. Like what can you borrow? What is yours? What can you steal? Where does inspiration come from and how does it slip through your fingers? And so, you know, the cultural referencing is, I think, part of that idea. There's a great line very early in the book when um, they've all first met. We first meet all these characters in a TP at this camp in 1974 when they're all sort of getting to know each other and when the sort of the centerpiece character of the book, Jules, who we'll talk about in a moment, first meets them all and she first is sort of absorbed by how starry they are even in the world of this camp. And Hannah, you just reminded me of this line when you talk about, well, is is she inventive enough or is she giving herself an out by not having to invent these characters? And they're talking about all this chatter that's going on between these characters and it says, Julie in her stone state had the idea that all this was banter or the closest they could get to banter at their age. The level of actual wit here was low, but the apparatus of wit had been activated, readying itself for later on. And so, like, for huge portions of this novel, Meg Walter has, like, a great out. Like, if you don't think these characters' banter is funny enough, well, that's not her fault. Right. right. Because they're they're just not there yet. Right. It's the, the title is itself, is it ironic or not? That becomes the ultimate question. Are they interesting or are they not interesting? Because it becomes very... But don't you have that conversation with yourself all the time? Like, is this piece I wrote interesting or is it not interesting? I mean, there's just there's kind of like a wry kind of self-doubt there. I'd like to talk about Jules a little bit, if that's okay, because she's a character that is – she's a very Meg Walzer character. It's like a woman of a certain generation on whom forces act. You know, and often with Meg Walzer, there's sort of feminist forces that are acting on a woman who's been given these certain expectations and does or doesn't meet them or is or isn't resentful of them. In this case, she's more like – I suppose more like the character in prep, right? She's somebody who's sort of just outside the group who's always grasping at the things that they have or maybe they have naturally. And she was distracting to me because I couldn't place her the whole time in the novel. Like I couldn't figure out sort of was she sympathetic? Are we supposed to see these people through her eyes? It wasn't the usual way that happens, which is there's an outsider character through whom you see the main group critically, right? That's not exactly what it's No, like. she's extremely uncritical of the group. I mean, yeah. she embraces the group and for her, they become her everything. They're like her way out of her life in Jersey as a teenager and even later in life when she feels a great deal of resentment, for example, the wealth that Ash and Ethan have, she still grasps at that and she still appreciates all that it gives her. Um, I'm going to say that again because that was a loud – No, no. Just, just keep it in there. It's great. <laughs> Sorry. I was taking a drink and all right. it popped. No, just that's, right. that's the good part. It's our new sensitive mic. Sorry uh, about that. It's this podcast verite. But she gets to take she's those vacations and she gets to – right. She ends up sort of half living the life and half not and she's – She's less critical, we like to think, than we would be of that group. But at the same time, I really liked Jules because 
I don't actually think I'm that much different from her. I think that in her situation, I would probably be the exact same way because I have the exact same kind of warm feelings towards like the little coterie of brainy people that I hung out with when I was a teenager or in college. And and I don't know if this is the same for you, but one of the reasons I ended up really liking this book in a lot of ways was that I really related to the interestings as a group, even though I didn't necessarily relate to most of them individually. I had that with people. I had that sense that, oh, here are a bunch of us. By happenstance, we all ended up in this dorm room in Chapel Hill, but we're all going to lead big lives, as the novel keeps saying. Big lives are what we're destined for. And most of us aren't going to actually lead those lives. Probably none of us are actually going to lead, like, big lives. You had that too, David, I would say, right? You and your roommates had kind of plans and lives and – You know, I didn't really have that, but I think you did. Well, I just got together with my college roommates who I get together with them every few years. We don't have that, but we don't have that kind of ongoing, persistent relationship. No, but that sense in your 20s that you should write something down about what the future of your life is going to look like and what kind of life you're going to lead and that it's going to be interesting. Because they'll need it like for the library later that's devoted to you and your friends who (laughs) just happened to meet here. At this place. Well, but but I, I think one important point is that these are all theatrical people, that this is an arts camp and these are people who are in the arts and there is this sense in if you are an artist of this destiny. That is not the case with me and my college friends. But I feel at a second degree what you're describing, Dan. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I sort of had the sense that I wanted to be part of such a group, although I never was actually part of such a group. Well, there's that devastating moment when Jules is told by her teacher really at exactly the same moment that Ethan Figman, who has once been in love with her and maybe is forever in love with her, is getting his spectacular success. She is told by her acting teacher effectively, does anybody need to see you on the stage? Right. And she is the person who gets the most direct confirmation that she is, in fact, not talented and should get out of the arts. And she never really gets over it. I mean, all the way to the very end of the book when her husband is, like, trying to level with her when they're out, like, in the woods arguing. And he's like, you know, I'm just a guy. I'm helping you run this camp. I was a sonogram tech. And she says, uh, stop it. Don't say you're not special. Right. Like, right. She has right. this. Like, she, this is what drives her her whole life, even as she – to some extent, bucks against it. You know, she doesn't end up being a star. She doesn't end up being rich. She's a very good, I think, therapist who really cares about her patients a lot. But she never gives up on that sense of wanting specialness. For what what her I don't she loves. the thing the emotion that I feel is missing from her. So she has this grand friendship with Ash, who incidentally, sidebar, Ash is totally boring. Is it like the least <laughs> interesting character? There's nothing to her. There's You don't know anything about her in her life. She appears – she's a blank. I mean Ash is – I feel like a name given to her because she is ashen and mm-hmm. you know she floats away and is, is not there. But Jules did not have the natural emotion I would think she would feel towards Ash, which is jealousy, which is that Ash is also a person without – she Huge totally has of, jealousy. Not, she's filled, she has these long arias of envy she goes on every time she gets their Christmas card. Well, but she's arias of envy about their life. Right. Not arias of envy about the fact that Ash is a successful artist without particularly – whose success appears not really to be merited. That Ash is no better – But that's No why, better than Jules. That had Jules actually gone ahead and married Ethan, she would be as successful because when you're a rich person, you're attached to a rich and famous person, people will cut you a break and let you – direct Trojan women. Ash is a complicated character because she's difficult to hate. Like if she had been a bitch who was easy to hate, I think that would be much less complicated situation. I would say the only time she was loathsome was when reading that Christmas card, which comes quite early in the book. So you get a sense 
that these people are insufferable, but in fact, she's not at all insufferable. She's a loyal friend. No, and of we course. Get, and yes, we get yeah, moments yeah. from Jules of that exact feeling of feeling like, and we hear it from Ethan too, this sense that while Ash probably got what she got because of marrying Ethan and it always comes up in her reviews and everyone's always very nice and says that she's very talented, but there's no like passionate following for her necessarily. And then you get that. I mean, you don't get it to the extent that Jules is jealous just flat of their money. But you do get the sense that she sees the life that she could have had with Ethan and she sees Ash living it. And yeah. she recognizes that there isn't necessarily a difference between right. them except for that Ash is like easy in that world in the way that Jules can never be. Also, the kind of talent Ash has, as Meg Walters exploring different kinds of inspiration and talent, Ash falls into one category, which is the derivative political art. You know, her art is explicitly feminist. She's doing always the obvious feminist plays where she transposes right. male right. and female right. characters. Right. It's not like Ethan Figman's art, which comes from some, you know, deeper place. Right. But it's his... exactly like what Jules' art would have been if she had successfully been an artist. She was not an inspired creator she viewed herself as oh she could be like the funny sidekick girl right that was the extent of her artistic dreams right what do you guys make of the fact that jules finds herself completely incapable of loving of falling in love with ethan figman of having of being attracted to him and how defining that is for the book her revulsion whenever in the various times when he kisses her it's always about smell. There's it's, a lot of smell. And, yeah, and, and it's always and, with Ethan. And Dennis Ethan. smells oaky and quirky. Right, right. But <laughs> Maybe Dennis smells oaky and Ethan smells quirky. I can't remember. Right, but there's always like that comparison. Ethan, yes, physically, she feels physical revulsion at him. And it's that inability to get over that basically that steers her entire life. Well, I also thought that was an interesting meditation on when one finds men like that attractive, like the ugly man with talent, right? So that he has no evident talent yet. He's just a kid who's really ugly. And so she doesn't find him attractive. She has a, a crush on the hot Goodman Wolf, the brother of Ash. And so, but later on, he becomes a kind of desirable figure because his talent is well, but she but Ash, so go, sorry, go She ahead. knows he has talent, yeah. although she doesn't know he's going to be rich and famous. She knows that his, he's special in some way. I mean, he's the one whose talent, whose actual talent is most obviously in display at the camp. Mm -hmm. You know, she actually sees his drawings and she's actually blown away by them. But at the same time, Ash hooks up with him before, as you say, plots, it becomes evident that he's going to be a success. She's an extremely desirable person in this world. She's beautiful and rich and smart and nice and wonderful. And she manages... To not even feel that initial revulsion, she overcomes it if, if there's even anything to overcome, and at her moment of great need, latches onto him, and that and they become these great soulmates. But that leads me to a question, which was to me like the biggest failing of this novel. And even though I liked lots of different parts of this novel, it was the thing that made the novel like make me just actively angry at times. Which is this: the core of the sort of conflict of the book is that Goodman, Ash's brother, is accused of rape. A couple years after they're all at camp at New Year's Eve at Tavern on the Green, he is accused by the sixth of this group, Kathy, of raping her. They were going together for several years and then they break up and then they go out drunk and stoned to Tavern on the Green on New Year's Eve and she says that he rapes her like in a closet. And then the trial is about to take place and he freaks out and flees. He takes his money and his papers and flees and he ends up in Iceland and the whole family knows he's in Iceland. They find out a couple years later, but... Ash, supposedly Ethan's soulmate, never tells Ethan for years and years and years and years and years and years and years. And I thought that was fucking bullshit. 
Like, am I wrong? Did that sell to you as like a plot move? Not to me. Did you do you? Huh? Yeah, totally. I mean, there's just really? what do you <laughs> because my family would do the same thing. Like that's that is the great. Do flaw. you have a brother, a rapist brother somewhere that I do not know about? <laughs> my own brother's bad enough. I don't need another one who's actually in legal trouble. No, but but take that, that but your brother is awesome. You cannot say that. <laughs> All right, I take it back. He's never going to listen to this book. So. All right, Come I'll on. take it. All right, Come I'll on. take it back. I'll on. take it back. I'll take it back. But the point is, that's the great flaw in Ash, who seems wonderful and lovely, is that tribal loyalty she has. Like, all these people who sort of skitter around the wolves and want to be the wolves and want to be in their house, you can never be a wolf. Like, that family just, like, you know, closes ranks, and they would do something like demand that she not tell the husband. I just don't see it, because the novel, it takes such pains to make them have this, like, real, unearthly, amazing connection. Yeah. Like, and then this secret at the heart of it ends up being the thing that destroys it. But then we're meant to believe that the secret stands in for all the other problems that they actually had, which I also didn't believe Mm -hmm. because the novel did such a good job of convincing me in the first place that they were literally perfect for each other. Right. And so it like drove me crazy throughout the whole book because I didn't think no matter how tribal she was, I thought she was the kind of person who the instant that she realized what she and Ethan had that would be her loyalty above all else, way more than her mom and dad and her like semi-repugnant brother. Well, why would she just tell... Fully repugnant. He's Sorry, more fully than, He's, yeah, he's okay. more than semi. Why would they just tell Jules? That's the interesting question. Why tell her and not tell Ethan? It's solely so that the plot had somewhere to go. Like That I, also didn't solve. There's no reason they would tell Jules at all. Mm-hmm. I'm totally with Dan on this. Yeah. Why are you skeptical of it? Whereas his secret from her, I feel like actually could have been a real secret. Which is what? That he's in love with Jules? No, no, not that. No, that he oh, that hides he, yeah, when like, they're doing the big oh, right. study of their son, their right. autistic son. That he can't take it. And he when they go, when they take their son in for diagnosis to see if he's on the spectrum, he claims he has meetings in L.A., but in fact, it's just hiding in a hotel in New York. That's, right, like, that's also like that's, that's like a, a crime. That's a misdemeanor. That's like, yeah, right, exactly. That's a misdemeanor. Maybe Ash has to hide from her husband the thing that is unresolved about her. You know, her continuing protection of her brother – contrary to everything else that she is in the world and wants to be like it it counters her sense of herself as good and feminist and wonderful and she just can't resolve those two sides of her personality so she has to keep it hidden all right let's debate this further but first i want to um, pause for a word from our sponsor audible.com audible is the leading provider of premium digital spoken audio information and entertainment on the internet you can choose from more than 100,000 audiobooks and listen to them on nearly any device, including the one you're using to listen to us right now. Audible has a special offer for audiobook club listeners. When you sign up for a 30-day free trial membership, you will get one, count them, one free audiobook of your choice. Just visit our special URL, audiblepodcast.com slash slateabc. There are thousands of books to choose from, including everything from classics to current New York Times bestsellers to this book, The Interestings, which you potentially already listened to on Audible. Um, but we like to recommend our next audiobook club selection for next month, which uh, next month we're going to talk about Life After Life by Kate Atkinson. It's read by Fenella Woolgar. It is a alternate history of the 20th century with many, 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 many different endings. And it's great. So please listen to it on Audible and come join us next month. Your membership to Audible also includes a free subscription to either the New York Times or Wall Street Journal Daily Audio Digest. So give it a try. And please use our URL so Audible knows that you are an audio book club listener. Once again, that URL is audiblepodcast.com slash 
Slate ABC. So you've had time to think now, Hannah. Well, I want to talk more about Goodman. What does Goodman represent in this book? Maybe that will help me think about this. So Goodman Wolf, does he represent in the drama of The Gifted Child, which comes up again and again, right. which is a book by psychoanalyst Alice Miller, which talks about you know how parents screw up their children with all their expectations. Is he the one who's been most ruined by the general expectations around him because he's an oaf and he's talentless and he's got this you know, amazing sister who can't do any wrong. And so he's the victim of this interesting culture, this culture of you know everyone has to be talented and special. He's one of the victims. Jonah Bay is the other victim and we'll get to him. But he is that what he is in this book? Boy, I don't know. I don't get the impression that Meg Waldser wants to think of him as a victim of this necessarily. Like I feel like he benefits from it enormously over the course of his first 17 years, but then just blows it because he's like too dumb to not continue seizing onto the advantages that he has, which, you know, if he had stayed in New York, I have to imagine he would have eventually been fine. Like he would have gotten out of it and he would have just gone on to lead his mediocre but still incredibly privileged life. Although Meg Wolitzer doesn't necessarily tell us the facts of the rape, does she? I mean, she doesn't... Come on. She doesn't tell it. She doesn't, she doesn't show it that she way. She does not show the scene and she does not tell us what happened. We get it from multiple but, different perspectives. But we s- certainly – it seems to me that the facts as we get them from different people are meant to lead us to the notion that he raped her. She suffered from it and in the end was more noble than he ever could have been in a million years. Although Megwold, he's the person she destroyed the most in the novel. I mean, he's of all of the interestings, he's the one who ends up the worst. Like he doesn't go off and be, you know, a laborer in Iceland or, you know, live a live right. a humble life in a fishing village right. like he because becomes he like a homeless lunatic. Right, he won't work. He refuses to labor. I've talked to you about this on that I've always wanted there to be a an alternate instead of it gets better campaign, the It Gets Worse campaign, uh-huh. where you have people who are at their pinnacle in high school right. saying, you know, after prom, it, it just gets worse. <laughs> right. You'll never be a hero again. Well, and that's... he's a classic type. That's a classic type, the sexy king of, of high school. There's nowhere to go but down. But right. that is an alternate title for this book. I mean, this book could be called It Gets Worse. Like, even for Ethan Figman, the one, you know, successful person in this book, he's got nothing but failures. You know, he does these spin-off shows from Figland, and they pretty much tank, you know, and then he gets cancer and dies. Like, it gets worse for everybody, basically. That camp moment, spirit in the woods, is that, you know, that spark, that, like, inspiration that they're forever trying to capture. And the whole camp, which is a kind of hippie bohemian camp, is designed to kind of hallowing that idea of the spark, and yet it's always gone, and, like, it's always fading away from from you. you can't ever get it or catch it or bring it back. It always gets worse. Well, no, but if you're Dennis and you live a life which is not designed around the spark, but it's designed around work, know, working every work. day right. and taking care of your family and cooking a nice meal and, you know, making sure that the lights are on in the camp, then it's it's fine. You don't need the spark every day. Do you but, need the spark every day? I don't. I think just showing up, showing up is fine. A lot of the time. No, you don't think so. <laughs> There's this um, section in the book that I want to read where it talks about sort of the notion of it gets worse or at the very least it never changes. Um, and this is when they are uh, in the TP and they are hanging out with one of the counselors, Gudrun Sigrid's daughter, who is a very nice Icelandic lady who volunteers or who works at this camp and then years later ends up helping Goodman. And so they ask her, Goodman says, Gudrun, tell me something. The very drunk Goodman said. Why do you think women act the way they do, being all needy and then getting you completely drawn in, then screwing things up, 
doing this little back and forth with you. Why are relationships so fucked up? Does it ever change? Is it different in Denmark? I'm not from Denmark, good thing. <laughs> of course you're not. I knew that. I was just wondering if you knew how it was in Denmark. <laughs> nice save, Wolf, said Ethan. What are you asking me exactly, Gudrun said. Why do I think the problems between the men and women of the world are the way they are? You want to know whether the problems that you teenagers feel, will they follow you over the rest of your lives? Will your hearts always be aching? Is that what you were asking me? Goodman shifted in discomfort. Something like that, he said. Yes, said the counselor in a suddenly plangent voice. Always they will be aching. I wish I could tell you something else, but I wouldn't be telling the truth. My wise and gentle friends, this is the way it will be from now on. We are so, so fucked, Jules said. <laughs> so there is this sense, and there's a line later, too, and Ethan says we, we all sing the same aria. We have one aria that we sing over and over throughout our lives. There's a sense that certainly the people that they are when they meet at that teepee were meant to believe that they're the people that they always and forever will be for the rest of their lives. That if Dennis had been in that teepee, not that he ever would have been, but that if Dennis, Jules' husband, had been in that teepee, he would have then been down to earth and a hard worker and happy, even with depressive tendencies, and he would have been like that forever. That they're all faded to basically that the interestings may be interesting, but because of the people they are, they're faded, lead the lives they lead, and it's just going to get worse for them. So that seems like a more depressing uh, like message than I actually came out of the book feeling. But is that like true? Do you think that's the message of this book? Well, it struck me only later that the book was quite depressing. Initially, I thought of it as just circling around a theme. So you had many ways of thinking about talent and how talent comes and goes. And then it occurred to me that basically no one comes off clean, you know? Gosh, I just don't read it that way. What do you, what mean? Do you mean? No one comes off clean. I mean, people have they have sorrows and disappointments and failures. But Jules and Dennis are married and relatively happily and he gets out of his mental his grand depression ash has a successful professional career she has two children that she loves i mean one of them's messed up but they're children that she loves and wealth and comfort and jonah i can't even remember what happens to jonah in the end but you know he hits that guy with a banjo <laughs> Wait, so the point you're saying is that it's not well, depressing, I mean, it's just life. It's life. Yeah. I mean, I think that's well, good about the book. I mean, it's, I mean not, it's not a decline. I mean, it's only a decline if you think of that every moment must be felt at 11. Right. Well, no, it it's doesn't. also a decline if you think that after the part that you talk about where Ash is pretty happy in a relationship with Ethan is good and her kids are good, they break up. Yeah, but they, and, they don't. And her they oldest don't. daughter is completely screwed up and then Ethan dies. But they don't they actually don't break, break up. up. They don't break up. They don't break up. You yes, know, I he guess... dies, but we, you know, that's going to happen to you too. <laughs> I guess the other thing is Spoiler. that we're seeing Spirit in the Woods through Jules's eyes in the beginning of the book, but they're not necessarily experiencing it the way Jules is experiencing it. Like when, when Goodman Wolf comes out of the woods at the end and he and Jules are having this argument about, you know, what spirit in the woods means and they're fairly cruel to each other in that moment. The way that Goodman ribs her is by saying, oh, this meant everything to but you. But it meant everything right. to him. Why well, is he that's back? what she says. It meant everything to you, but it might not have meant everything to the rest of them. In other words, maybe for Ash and Ethan, this wasn't just a crazy slow No, but Ethan, it's old, old Mo Templeton. Is, you know, it's where he learned his craft. It is. No, I don't know. This is interesting because I, I hadn't thought of that, but I sort of buy that. That like I think for Ethan and Jules, maybe what is left unsaid but which is maybe true is that this camp meant way more to them because it was their entree into the world of being interesting. Whereas, right, Ash and Goodman had that this from the and second Jonah that they too. were born. And Jonah, too, had that from the second they were born. I mean, and well, and Jonah's whole life seems to be sort of a constant struggle against being interesting as much as he can. Like, his goal right. is to get rid of what he was born with, his birthright and his 
mom's influence and the music that he was born with because of what happened to him as a kid. So let's talk about Jonah. Yeah, I'm right? totally compelled by Jonah. Really? What happens to Jonah Bay? Yeah, oh, I, just... I thought he was lame. Please go on. <laughs> Tell our audience what happened to Jonah Bay. You thought he personally was lame or the whole plot line? So what happens to Jonah Bay is that he's got Susanna Bay, who's this Joan Baez really famous folk singer when the book starts in the 70s and her fame slowly wanes throughout the course of the book. And Jonah is a lost soul who is forever being taken advantage of. At first, he's he's very beautiful and he's gay, but but closeted at first and has this relationship with Ash. And then, you know, but it's a kind of limp relationship. And after that, he discovers he's gay. But and even then before the, that, even before that, what happens to him is he... Oh, the great drama yes, of yes. his young life is that he is taken advantage of by a man named Barry Claims, who's a folk singer in his mother's orbit. And Barry Claims does an amazing thing to him, which is that he... Bring, Barry Claims is is in the, the wane of his career and has lost his inspiration. And so he's heard Jonah playing next to his mother and thinks Jonah has some spark of talent. Jonah's quite young. He's 10 at the time. And he brings – Barry brings him to his house every once in a while and gives him acid, I guess, yeah. in all sorts of forms. Like he gives it to him in chewing gum or in brownies and he gets him stoned and then he has him play the guitar and then he steals his spirit. I mean he basically steals his inspiration. <laughs> the only example of that we have is this quite terrible – <laughs> idea of the, the shelf, selfish shellfish, right. which seems extremely unpromising. No, no, wait, there's, 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 there's an anti-war anti song. Yeah, there's too. an anti-Vietnam song that he steals too. Yeah, it, yeah. Le Meg Wilter leaves it a little bit ambiguous about whether the talent that Barry claims is stealing actually exists or doesn't exist. But the narrative gets set in Jonah's mind. He kind of becomes aware of it later that somebody stole his spirit. It, it, it's almost like the guy sexually abused him. Like that's the effect it has on Jonah throughout his life. It basically blocks him and he's unable to, I guess, fulfill his potential and become a singer or right, do like, anything or have a relationship. He just becomes like a spoiled person. Right. But inst then. like instead of creating like a very specific kind of sexual abuse related shame, it creates uh, talent related shame, yeah. right? It creates in him this inability to employ the thing that it seems like we're meant to believe he was put on earth to do. And yet, but he does something better, much better than creating crummy folk music. Is that he helps people who really need desperately need help? But aren't we meant to believe that at the end, when he starts playing again, that's supposed to be like a big breakthrough for him? Well, maybe. But don't you think if you were a utilitarian measuring the world, you'd say it's good that he's building prosthetics for? But he's not who into can't it. Get... He just it's like a day job for him. He's not into you know it. whatever he doesn't. He's not. It's not inspiring for him. You're so but... Marxist. You're like the worker, the worker. <laughs> Well, I, I kind of am. I think people are defined by their product of their labor, and the product of his labor is good. But what about the product of his labor of love? I mean, he is unable to connect to people. This is a man who grows up and has this kind of, you know, willfully distant relationship with somebody who he he doesn't connect. I mean, he's like an island, you know? Right. He's wounded. That's terrible for him. That is, it's tragic for him. But, but he's producing the but, widgets, so it's all. But the widgets are made. No, but for the world, <laughs> in terms of what he gives to back to the world, what he gives back to the world is better than what he would have given back had he been, you know, Jacob Dylan. That's like a really weird view of what music does. I mean, music, what if he'd been a beautiful singer? Like, music is but beautiful. But what, what if it had just been the selfish, shellfish two? <laughs> yeah. The selfish, shellfish three. Even <laughs> ever more selfish. The obese oyster. The obese the, octopus. The, the cruel clam. <laughs> right. The surly right, scallop. The seven deadly sins of the seven seas. It's true, like. <laughs> the crabby crayfish. <laughs> 
for all of for all of the great talent that he stole when we come upon Barry claims much later at the very end of the book at one of these mastery seminars that Ethan Figman is having he's like a crappy children's musician <laughs> He's like sort of overweight, you know, wheezing, crappy children's musician. Who is he supposed to be? Arlo Guthrie or something? <laughs> no. I guess we're not allowed no, to know. No, not Arlo no, Guthrie. No. 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 I guess he's Crosby or Stills, I guess. Huh. Did you guys think this book was funny? Because I was, I was, as I was looking back over it, there were a few moments that I thought were just truly laugh out loud, hilarious. And then the rest of it I felt would have been much better had it been much funnier. I thought the book was muted in a way, like even yeah. in its its commitment to its own ideas, it, it just sort of circled around things. It wasn't bad. I mean, it, that was just its tone was a little muted. Where there was the great scene between Ethan Figman and the wolf father. And the wolf father. That yeah. was yeah. the great that was yeah. a great scene. That was very Tom shows, Wolfish. Show him yes. the art. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, what were his drawings? They were like terrible there's a, the sketches. It's <laughs> one of his daughter, like or no, his wife, like looking out the window right. at sunset. But it's, it's also Ethan's anticipation that he's going to show him like crazy porn, right? And then his realization, like that, for the rest of his life, his entire life resides up on the fact that he did not follow the impulse to assume that his father-in-law was joking. Right? <laughs> that he didn't. His first thing he said was, "Oh, come on." It wasn't that. It was, oh, that's pretty good. <laughs> well, I actually identified with that scene because, you know, that's probably the way the vast world that does not even appear in this book, because this book is about a small circle of people. But then there's the whole rest of the world represented in that scene who have this idea about the creatives. Like, you know, your your grandma's best friend who sends you a story idea, right? right. Like that category of people in the world who are very distant from the creatives, but kind of, you know, tim- you know sort of tepidly show you. So I want to talk about that tone that you were mentioning, Hannah, because this was one of the things that ended up sort of turning me off of this novel a little bit was I think a little bit of the humorlessness that you noted or the mutedness comes from this – from the book's desire to be like a big book. And Meg Walter has talked about this a lot. She wrote a very famous piece for the Times Book Review a year and a half ago called The Second Shelf about the way that men's novels are viewed as opposed to women's and the way that a guy can write a novel that takes place over a couple of decades and it gets a big, bold cover and everyone talks about it as a statement of our generation. And if a woman writes the same novel, it's just like a domestic novel about women and their problems. Um, And so – I definitely get the sense in this book that part of her desire in writing this was to write a sort of generational statement, that this is the story of our generation from 1974 to 2013 when we all die of cancer. And so there are all these sections in this. You know, First of all, the book jumps back and forth in time and it's told by this omniscient narrator who knows the eventual fates of all these characters but doesn't always let us know what they're going to be. So there's these lines like, right. of course, things would be much different for Kathy, which like drove me up <laughs> right. a wall. And then there are all these sort of sections of historical context like the world went forward and people got more obsessed with money. And those like to me, those were such obvious telltale – this is a big book notes and they drove me crazy because I didn't care about that stuff. Like I know that stuff. I know what happened in New York in 2003. Like you don't need to tell me in a not particularly new way of what it was like in New York in 2003. I want to know about these people. Like did that bother you guys at all? Well, I think that that critique is sometimes correct. I will say, you know, like the Marilyn Robinson novel. Like there's definitely moments when a woman writes a sort of domestic novel or a novel oh, yeah. relationship, right? So the critique is No, I don't disagree with the critique at all. And I was thinking about this in relationship to freedom because that was mentioned in the New York Times review that Liesl Schillinger wrote. And I think that the difference is that the quality of each character was fairly similar. They were all kind of 
of muted. Mm. Like there weren't moments when it seemed to me that Meg Walter was sort of racing with an obsession about one character or that one character was – you were following them into a rabbit hole. Like there was something about the evenness of the tone Mm -hmm. which kept it from feeling sort of grander to me, Mm -hmm. you know? Like it was a little too contained, you know, contained in this group, contained in this one idea. I think that's really well put. You've said something which now I understand why reading the book was a pleasant but not tantalizing or moving experience. What I'm trying to figure out is what what is a book that's not like that, that ha- also has the same kind of ambitions? What's a book that aspires to be such a huge societal novel and succeeds? That's about our modern era. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm in the tank for freedom, but I, but that's like an extremely unpopular answer to that question. But like a Tom Wolfe book, like well, does see, that count? Or Wolf... That's also too even in tone. Well, and no, too no, it's not too, no. Tom Wolfe is Tom Wolfe. It's just he's a cliche because he invented all these tricks, and these tricks are now tedious, and it's it's much broader and not subtle. I mean, Bonfire of the Vanities is a is a great book. I think Bonfire of the Vanities is a much greater book than this is, but it's also highly uneven and and infuriating in a way this book isn't is there some book by a woman that you could cite that is not a second shelf book that is a first shelf book that has this kind of ambition is it possible to write such a book like this yes i mean i besides freedom okay maybe freedom i don't i'm not no i mean like so for example i like there's another novel that came out this spring is rachel kushner's the flamethrowers which is which i think has a similar ambition though it doesn't span a similar like scale of time and space but it is meant to be a certain portrait of a generation at a certain time. And it has big book dreams, but it wears them a lot more lightly, I think, than this one does. It doesn't have those passages where it's like specifically trying to paint the picture through this like omniscient narrative voice that is meant to tell us how we are meant to feel about our time. Right. I mean, I feel like this way about the great let the great world spin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The Colin McCann book. The Colin McCann yeah. book. Yeah. Wait, you feel it does it or doesn't it? It does it. It does it. Uh-huh. That it is a truly grand, magnificent book that captures But that's a good a example. World. It's very different from this book. I mean, the, the characters are extremely distinct and you're mm. led into many, many different kinds of worlds of many different kinds of classes. And, you know, you're with very poor people and very, you know, you're sort of spanning spanning a wider range and it also has kind of a narrative trick that joins them together. It's, it's very different than this one. All right. Well, so uh, in the end, what do you guys think? Recommend or not recommend, David? Yeah, certainly the experience of reading it was fine. It was good. It was yes, it's pleasant. And if you're the people in the demographic group that they're writing about, I think will like to see the echoes of their own life and that sense of envy of their rich friends. And you, as you said, Dan, the the evocation of some moment in your own youth. Sure, not hugely enthusiastically. But yeah, yeah, I recommend for sure. I also recommend, though there were many things about the book that annoyed me, but I mean, I also like I read it like five hours straight one afternoon when my kids were gone. So like I just found it also a very pleasurable reading experience even if at the end of it I wasn't sure that it was the masterpiece that it wanted to be. I will say that my great disappointment with it, maybe my forever disappointment with this novel, is that the buffalo nipple never came back. (laughs) (laughs) What was that? that? It's this moment when she's at school and Jules is at school in Buffalo and she visits Ethan and they have this like moment where he like grabs her boob in Buffalo and they immediately like, no, no, that was a terrible idea. We never should have done that. And then for for the rest of their lives, just saying Buffalo nipple becomes a kind of shorthand for, oh, well, we shouldn't have tried that thing. 
You know, I, I was did so not... angry that never came back. Like that, that sh- in their last conversation when he's like dying of cancer, there should have been a buffalo nipple joke. Like I'll say that to you every once in a while. Thank you. At the slate retreat, I did not have the experience of reading it fairly quickly. I have to say that when I initially got used to the pace of it and kind of understood what the main theme of it was, when I sort of captured that in the first third of the novel, there was not a lot propelling me forward. Like You're I felt like, like I, I was it. gonna, I get it, and I right. felt like I was gonna slowly walk with these people through their lives and sort of muted things were gonna happen, but nothing was gonna poke me in the eye, so I stopped waiting for that, and then it took me a very long time to finish it. Right. Why, why yes, nothing poked you in the eye. That's a good line. That's <laughs> nothing, what you want. Nothing you want a book buffaloed you my in the nipple eye. or whatever. Right. Nothing buffaloed your nipple. Buffalo, 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 yeah. buffalo, buffalo, nipple. Okay, so um, thank you both, uh, David and Hannah. Thank you for joining me. A program note, so as I mentioned before in our Audible ad, the next audiobook club, we're discussing Kate Atkinson's Life After Life a historical novel in which the 20th century has many, many different endings. So read it or, hey, listen to it. Does Ethan Audible. live in that version of the 20th century? Uh, the, I believe Figland is actually a huge bomb. It's a bomb and everyone hates it. But Futurama <laughs> is an enormous hit that lasts for 30 seasons. Uh, so join us anyways for our discussion on August 2nd. The homepage for the Slate Book Review is slate.com slash books. You'll find the show pages for this and every episode of the Audiobook Club at slate.com slash abc. Visit our Facebook page where you can leave a comment on the episode. That address is facebook.com slash SlateABC. Please subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, which helps other people discover the show. Search for Slate Audiobook Club in the iTunes store, and don't forget to leave a comment while you're there. Our producer is Abdul Rufus. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Andy Bowers. For David Plotz and Hannah Rosen, I'm Dan Coyce. Thanks for listening.